0: Get the most out of your time in the outdoors and go to Forlow.com and use code DAILYWIRE for 20% off your purchase. That's Forlow.com code DAILYWIRE.
1: President Trump has changed his mind about disbanding the Chinese Flu Task Force and will instead have it evolve into a modern dance troupe or possibly a White House-based improv comedy club. The president had said the task force would slowly shut down now that its work on the Chinese flu is over, but journalists and other useless nudges objected, saying the task force had played an important role in getting everything wrong and giving reporters a chance to ask useless gotcha questions, so it should continue throughout the summer, especially with our favorite TV shows in reruns. Since there's not much else that can be done about the Chinese flu itself until the Jews come up with a cure, Trump says he feels doctors Anthony Fauci and Deborah Burks should turn to other things. The president said, quote, per- perhaps they could put on a production of Romeo and Juliet. It's really one of my favorites of the Bard's works because it hovers in that vexing shadowland between comedy and tragedy, raising fascinating and profound questions about the role of chance and coincidence, not just in theater, but in human affairs as well. And that's not just me saying that. Many respected people have said as much, and they tell me Shakespeare would have been amazed at the terrific job I've done as president, unquote. <laughs> Journalists also want to see the task force continue. And so does CNN's Jim. Look at me. I'm Jim Acosta, who told his three sided mirror, quote, the task force has done such a terrible job that we have to keep them going because they're doing such a wonderful job without their briefings. I would just have to sit on the sofa in my underwear, screaming, brain dead and insulting non questions at the television set while the dread understanding of how badly I've wasted my life slowly settled over me like a shroud, unquote. The task force has now been set to work studying what the task force should do now that there's no reason for there to be a task force. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is a-biddy-zing. It's a wonderful day, hoorah, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh hurray! Oh hurray! Here's something I've noticed all through this Chinese flu shutdown. There have been these two major stories running like the subject and counter-subject in a musical fugue, kind of weaving in and out of one another. One story has been the corruption of the press, their inability to report anything without trying to fashion it to their political purposes. They've tried to push for continued economic shutdown when even Democrat governors realize the time has come to open up. They have covered uh, up for China when it's an oppressive and murderous regime that clearly had a role to play in starting this catastrophe. And they've been revealed as hypocrites in the Joe Biden story. And of course, they've utterly wasted all of our time asking questions at briefings that are not at all geared to gathering information. Just get Trump stuff. The other story that is woven in and out of that story has been the misuse of power by the administration of Barack Obama, now slowly coming to light. It now seems pretty clear that Michael Flynn was railroaded into a guilty plea for the purpose of keeping a useless investigation into Russia collusion alive. It now seems possible that the FBI's Peter Strzok abused his power in ways that may actually be not just wrong, but illegal. And today we have a story about Adam Schiff stalling the release of documents with no likely good reason ...other than to protect himself from being exposed as the liar he obviously is. And just like themes in a fugue, it may be that these two stories are really all part of one story. The untold story of the Obama administration's misuse of the federal government and how it ruined the press. The press has favored Democrats for a long time. I mean, as long as I can remember, certainly back to the Kennedy years... But under Obama, it became wholly an instrument of the party. They were snakebit by the color of his skin. They were mesmerized by his leftist politics. They were delighted with his academic intellectual facade. And they covered an incompetent and abusive administration as if it were the second coming. Barbara Walters said just that much. We thought he was the second coming of the Messiah. As he slowly came to understand that the press would not attack him no matter what he did, Obama led the Democrats into an era of Chicago-style machine politics that we don't actually usually see at the federal level. Abusing the IRS to silence dissent, abusing the Justice Department to bully local law enforcement, abusing the FBI to investigate a rival political campaign. The press, in failing to cover Obama honestly, essentially became complicit in those, that dirty politics. And now, in order to cover up their bad behavior, Possibly cover it up even from themselves, I'm not sure. The news media literally finds itself in the position of having to work to keep news from reaching the public. We have a news media dedicated to hiding the news. I think that what we are seeing now is that the Obama administration, protected by the president's race and by the sick racial obsessions of the left and their media, they destroyed the press as a reliable institution. It remains to be seen whether the press can be salvaged and reformed where the conservatives and maybe moderate liberals are smart enough to work together to do it. All right, we're all stuck in our houses. Our moms are stuck in their houses. We've got to celebrate our moms this Mother's Day with books. Books, what are books? Books is short for bouquet, right? And you can celebrate Mother's Day all month long and put a smile on mom's face each month with a flower subscription from books. You get 30% off plus free shipping every time. Subscriptions are flexible, so you can pause, switch up delivery dates, or even re- uh, even switch recipients to cover uh, all your bases and send flowers to your other mom. <laughs> if you're not into long-term commitment, you can try, try our gift trio for three months of farm-fresh blooms. Did you know that books are responsibly sourced from some of the world's finest eco-friendly farms, even, <laughs> even farms on the side of volcanoes? I cracked myself up with that one joke. So, Flowers stay fresher longer. Order anytime between now and May 31st to show mom some love and gratitude. Say thanks for always being there no matter what. Visit books.com slash Claven. That's B O U Q S. B O U Q S, short for bouquet.com slash Claven to place your order today. If you'd rather just buy one book, you can still receive 25% off at checkout by entering the promo code CLAVEN. Maybe you can't give mom a hug right now, but you can brighten her day with the books company. And you know, B-O-U-Q-S is short for bouquets, but K-L-A-V-A-N is short. What is that short for? Oh, it's just, that's my name. It's Claven. That's, that no <laughs> that's right. I just make it. Look, I'm not sure I'm actually making it look easy today. Uh, so, so we have to begin with this because it's just too much fun not to start with. Uh, everyone has been enjoying the spectacle of uh, Trump's new spokeslady, uh, Kaylee McEnany, I think it's pronounced. Taking this guy, Jeff Mason, from Reuters to pieces. <laughs> Jeff Mason asked this question at a briefing, and Kaylee just destroys him.
2: He made a comment, I believe, on Fox, in which you said President Trump will not allow the coronavirus to come to this country. Given what has happened since then, obviously, would you like to take that back? I guess I would turn the question back on the media and ask similar questions. Does Vox want to take back that they proclaim that the coronavirus would not be a deadly pandemic? Does the Washington Post want to take back that they told Americans to get a grip? The flu is bigger than the coronavirus. Does the Washington Post likewise want to take back that our brains are causing us to exaggerate the threat of the coronavirus? I'll leave you with those questions and maybe you'll have some answers.
1: This is, this is basically the story of this period of time is the press getting hit in its, fa- in the face with its own hypocrisy, leaving it and the left virtually helpless to stop anything that's happening. You know, we reported that story yesterday about uh, the lady uh, in Dallas, Shelley Luther, who opened her salon and the judge threw her in jail, not for opening the salon. He threw her in jail for contempt of court because we refused to apologize uh, to and basically say, oh, yes, government, you know, you you rule everything. And I didn't take the, the the judge down. You will remember yesterday. A lot of people were calling him names. He was certainly wrong to send her to jail it was jail and a seven thousand dollar fine. Uh, and he, he was certainly wrong to do that. There was an abuse of the rule of law. But I understand a judge standing up for the rule of law. But how can the press attack him? How can the press attack? Attack the people who were opposed to him when they have not been standing up for the rule of law at the border. Everything they do points to their own hypocrisy. Well, now the Texas Supreme Court has ordered her released. Uh, they There was a crowdfunding effort to defend her. It raised over half a million dollars. Uh, the governor came out and said that uh, he changed the rules to erase the thing that she was charged under. That would not alone have gotten her released, because she was in there for contempt of court, but still now the court has uh, said she should be released, and she probably will be. But how can, the, how can the press take any point of view when they have already sold their souls to defend the Obama administration, to, uh, to defend leftism in general? They can't. They're helpless. We'll take a look at more of that, because it's really happening all over. You know, uh, it, it, it's really interesting that, yet this thing about the, um, the task force, Trump says, I'm going to slowly disband the task force because basically we've done what we can do. And, and this is the thing that's true. You know, the, the, the thing it's not, obviously this is not over. We are now dealing with the kind of psychic blowback of having been lied to, and maybe lied to ourselves to some degree about what we were doing when we were sheltering in place, when we were closing down, we were trying to keep the curve from going so high that it, Hurt that it overwhelmed our hospitals. You have to keep that in mind. I have to keep saying it because it was never true. It was never true that the people weren't going to get the disease eventually. That people, the same number of people, weren't going to be exposed to the disease eventually. We have to go back to work, and we're going to walk out into the same plague as always. This was always the case. It was always true. Not me, of course, because we have to save the Clavin, and that's you know obviously that's the most. I mean, I think you can picture our country as kind of a solar system revolving around that fact. But immediately, immediately everybody jumped on Trump. All we've heard about is how bad a job Trump is doing. Trump and the administration, all he's done is what the task force told him to do. He's followed the experts right down the line. And all we've heard is what a terrible job he's doing, what a terrible job he's doing. He's he's like, I'm shutting down the task force. It's like, wait, you can't shut down the task force. They're doing such a wonderful job. Every word out of the press's mouth, because every word out of the press's mouth is for the Democrats, has just become hypocrisy. And in some ways, there's no point in my even separating the press from the Democrats because because of Obama, they are now completely in the in the Democrats' pockets. And because if they get out of the Democrats' pockets, they will be confronted with their own malfeasance during the Obama administration. They can't get out. They're trapped in their own corruption. It really is kind of this wonderful miltonic (laughs) thing where they are trapped in hell, everywhere they go, it's hell. So d- Trump says, "Well, all right, I'm going to uh, take back um, what I said. I'm not going to disband the. Uh, I'm not going to disband the task force. Let's just play what he says there." I thought we could wind it down sooner, but I had no idea how popular the task force is until actually yesterday, when I started talking about winding it down, I'd get calls from very respected people saying i think it would be better to keep it going it's done such a good job it's a respected task force it's uh um i i i knew it myself i didn't know whether or not it was appreciated by the public but it is appreciated by the public That that is really wonderful. Now, I just want to play Chuck Todd's reaction. Chuck Todd doesn't know what to condemn next. He doesn't know how to spin this thing. This is on MSNBC, but Todd goes back and forth between MSNBC and NBC. And so there's really no point in making any distinction. Not many people watch him. He's a real problem. He's a real thorn on their side because he has no ratings and he's a terrible, terrible. uh, He's bad at what he does. But here's Chuck Todd reacting to Trump in general and trying to spin, find a way to spin this narrative. So he's doing something wrong.
0: We begin tonight with a difficult question, which must be asked. Is the federal government, led by President Trump, considering, for a lack of a better word, surrendering to this virus? With more than 70,000 Americans dead, the president is telling the public that the country must reopen, even if it means more death. But he doesn't have a plan for doing that. A range of administration officials, including the president and the vice president, spent the day telling reporters yesterday that they were winding down the coronavirus task force as early as Memorial Day. Uh, that the vice president hinted at. But then he told reporters this afternoon that a lot of people apparently told him how bad of an idea that would be. The uncertainty surrounding the White House's strategy, which we seem to utter about on a daily basis, comes amid numerous warning signs that we're not anywhere near ready to safely reopen the country from a public health standpoint or a consumer confidence standpoint. Those 70,000-plus deaths I mentioned have happened in just 67 days, and the death toll is projected to basically double over the next 90 days based on current statewide plans to ease restrictions. You can't fix stupid.
1: (laughs) It's It's like watching a guy dance when you shoot bullets at his feet because he doesn't know where to go. If Trump opens up, he's surrendering to the virus. If he closes down the task force... They're, they're doing such a great job. He can't do it. If he keeps the task force, they're doing it. The administration is doing a terrible job. The task force is doing the job. It is doing the job. It is the people, they are the people who have been in charge of what's going on. So which is it? Do we have to keep them because they're doing such a great job or do we phase them out because the job is over or is that surrender? I mean, it's, it's incredible. It is incredible. The hypocrisy. And you know, you know, I keep going back to this Biden story and I keep telling you the Biden Tara Reid story is not about Biden or Tara Reid, it's about the press. And I think that that's an important uh, distinction to make because it may be, she may be exposed as, I don't know what's gonna happen. She may be exposed as a liar, she may not. It may all be true, who knows. But but just just watch this for a minute. This is this is just it's almost beautiful. It is almost beautiful the way the moral world works because the moral world do, is there. It is real and it does throw people back on themselves. And if you do certain things, it will come back and get you. It's like karma, except it's it's just actually based on the interaction between the human soul and reality. So, in the in the New York Times, Linda Hirschman, a crusader against sexual malfeasance, right? Writes an op-ed, I believe, this is from Knucklehead Row, our favorite place, the op-ed page of the New York Times, a former newspaper. She writes, I believe Tara Reid. I'm voting for Joe Biden anyway. (laughs) She says... She says all the major, all major Democrat party figures have indicated that they're not budging on the presumptive nominee and the transaction costs of replacing him would be suicidal. Barring some miracle, it's going to be Mr. Biden. So what is the greatest good or the greatest harm? She says she's a utilitarian, which is a completely exploded philosophy, but never mind about that. Mr. Biden and the Democrats. Uh, he may carry with him into government, are likely to do more good for women and the nation than his competition. The worst president in the history of the Republic, for some reason. Compared with the good Mr. Biden can do, the cost of dismissing Tara Reed and worse, weakening the voices of future su- survivors, is worth it. And don't call me an amoral realist, Utilitarianism is not a moral abdication; it is a moral stance. Well, no, it's not. First of all, utilitarianism is never really a moral stance. It may happen to coincide with a moral stance, but to do, to, but to say, "I'm going to do the wrong thing to achieve the right thing," is always a very, very difficult uh, you know, calculation. It might be right. I mean, sometimes it's right. I think it's right to, to, uh, torture a a suspect. If you are going to save a thousand lives, you know, if you know, the guy is guilty, I think that's that, I I suppose you could call that utilitarian, but I just think that's doing the right thing in a difficult situation where there is no right thing. So what she is saying is I'm abandoning all my principles to get what I want politically. And listen, I, I, I understand, you know, that's, that's fine. But now listen to this. All right yesterday the department of education uh run by betsy devos revised the obama era uh guidance for colleges on how to deal with sexual charges right and the obama obama wrote this letter the obama administration wrote this letter to colleges saying basically you better to take the women seriously and believe them and give the men no rights, or we will withdraw federal funding. It threatened that. It didn't actually say it out loud, but that's essentially what it was doing. So Betsy DeVos, the education secretary, held all these hearings, listened to all these people. The Obama administration never listened to anybody. They didn't get any advice from anybody, but Betsy DeVos actually did listen to this and basically say, no, you have to have the rule of law. It's a common sense reform. Everybody has to be able to testify. You have to hear from both sides. Both the men and the women have to be informed about what is going on and this is what's going on. So who comes out against this? One guess, Joe Biden, right? In his, (laughs) down in his cellar, the guy, you know, at this point, I think his wife is just watering him to make sure he's still still, (laughs) alive. For the convention, you know, maybe just throwing plant food on the guy. But he comes out and he says, I'll repeal this instantly under the old rules, under the old rules, Joe Biden is guilty under the old rules that his administration, the Biden Obama administration, the Obama Biden administration supported for colleges. Biden would now be out, right? Because they did not give the man a chance to defend himself. So what he is essentially saying, what the left is now openly saying in this and a lot of leftists attack these new rules these new fair rules what they are essentially saying is due process for me but not for thee due process when we need joe biden even when we believe the woman due Do process don't believe the woman if we believe the woman never mind but when the situation is reversed and it has to and it's a republican then it's okay. They're now openly saying this. I mean, right in front of us, they're openly saying it. So at what point does a person who says, yeah, we're not going to play fair. We're going to destroy you. Whenever th- something comes up, we're going to break the rules. The rules are different for you than they are for me. At what point do we just basically tell them to, to blow off? You know, at what, you know? It, it, it seems to me at this point, every moral word that comes out of a Democrat's mouth and out of the press's mouth can be safely ignored. And so the news about the flu can be ignored. We don't know what they're saying. We only know that they operate on this principle of due process for me, but not for thee. And since we know that, we can ignore them. All right, let us talk for a minute. Oh, I meant I forgot to mention, we got Dave Rubin coming up. He's got a new book and we're going to have him come on. I always like talking to Dave. His new book is called Don't Burn This Book. He will be coming up in just a moment uh, and we won't burn the book. Uh, though it would be entertaining. But meanwhile, let's talk about keeping your hair. Do you want to look like me? Of course you don't. Look at me. <laughs> look at me. Do you want to look like? No, you don't. But two out of three guys will experience some form of male pattern baldness by the time they're 35. At least somebody's having a good time, right? It just happens to be me. The good news is that with today's advancements in science keeps offers proven treatments that can combat the symptoms of hair loss and help you keep the hair you have at half the cost of your local pharmacy. On the one hand, you won't get to look like me. On the other hand, you'll have your hair. Prevention is key. Keeps treatments really work. They're up to 90% effective at reducing and stopping further hair loss. The sooner you start using Keeps, the more hair you'll save. So act fast. Many men even experience hair regrowth with Keeps treatments. Keeps has revolutionized the way men are treated for hair loss. Thanks to Keeps, you no longer have to go to the doctor's office for your hair loss prescription. Now you can visit a doctor online and get your hair loss medication delivered to your home. No more waiting rooms and no more pharmacy checkout lines. Get doctor attention and discreet drug delivery all from the comfort and privacy of your own home. If you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, go to Keeps.com/Clavin to receive your first month of treatment for free. That's K-E-E-P-S. Dot com slash Klavan. That's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash Pff, You know how to spell keeps. Anybody can spell keeps, but how, how, oh, how do you spell Claven? <laughs> <gonna> <laughs> All right, guys, have we got Dave? Well, Dave I'm is on the line. All right. That's what I wanted to hear. Dave Rubin, you know him, you love him. He's the creator and host of one of the most watched political talk shows on the internet. The Rubin Report. His new book is titled Don't Burn This Book, Thinking for Yourself in an Age of Unreason. It is a terrific read and it's out now and it's already hit the New York Times bestseller list. I did not know that. Dave, how you doing?
2: Clavin, I'm doing well. We, We hit it last night and I have no doubt that there were many meetings on Zoom, they normally do them in stuffy boardrooms in Midtown Manhattan, but they must have had Zoom meetings with a lot of disgruntled lefties going, Oh, we can't put it on. We can't, we can't, we can't. And I and I what I truly think happened is we just crushed it on the sales side to the point that they had no choice. But I will tell you this, I'm, you're you're well aware, because because you know you've written several books, um, you know the whole list is is nonsense in many ways. They they don't do it by actual sales. They do it by political persuasion and a whole bunch of other stuff. And I have to tell you, hundred percent honestly, when I got the call, I felt relief. I actually didn't feel joy. I felt relief because I have a team of people you know, and my publicists and and all of my guys that work for Ruben Report and everything else that have busted their butts so hard to make this launch successful. And literally, the the president of Penguin called me, and he has said we have never had a better team to work through a, a, a sale of a book. You guys have been just absolute pros, and I wanted my guys to get that cred. Honestly, for me, it's like I'm like you. I rail against the New York Times all the time. They've called me alt right and the rest yeah. of it. So <laughs> the idea that I wanted the idea that I wanted approval from something that I don't approve of myself, and I get it that the book list is separate than the editorial page, and and all that kind of stuff, but. It's a weird thing in life when, when you want something you don't really want and everything else. Yet here we are and it's all good. And more importantly, you know, people people are digging the book. And that's that's the important thing. People are really digging the book, but people are, are actually crusading to give it bad
1: reviews on Amazon. Isn't that right? I mean, they actually it's called Don't Burn This Book. But people are actually trying to essentially digitally burn the book.
2: Yeah, well, I didn't expect we were going to be in 1941 Germany and there was going to be a bonfire and people (laughs) were throwing the books in there. Although with the way the world's going, that's actually very possible. But what I did sort of expect was exactly what's happening. There's a massive coordinated attack on some of these underground websites. It's not even worth going into. And we we know it. And Amazon knows it like they're tracking all of this stuff where they just send thousands of people with fake accounts and they all like mm. each other and they, none of them read the book. They all attack me personally or they copy and paste something, the rest of it. And not that any of it matters, except that it actually proves the thesis of the book. Because it, you're right, This is a, it's a modern book burning of sorts. Why do you burn a book? Why did the Nazis burn books? Well, they didn't want people knowing the information that's in there. Now, the irony, the irony of this book right here is that all? I lay out is what I believe are common sense principles, and I and at the same time I say in the book you don't have to agree with me. And Andrew, I know you and I have some disagreements, and it's like right. on the conservative side of things, people don't care about the disagreements. I'm finding that, and I'll say this as we now we actually revel in them, we relish them, and uh, it you know I heard what you were talking about a moment ago about the Title IX thing and everything else, and it's like yeah these people have just lost. All of their credibility. Show me anyone on the left that is remotely close to intellectually honest. And it is almost impossible to find. I would say Bill Maher is sort of like the last mini oasis in the desert and he's trying the best he can. But I think, you know, it's as I keep telling all the Daily Wire guys or a lot of Star Wars people, it's like this is the Jedi after Order 66. They've been slaughtered. There's a couple throughout the galaxy, but they don't know where anybody is. Yoda's on Dagobah and Obi-Wan is on Tatooine. And it's like, is there anyone else out here? That's the way that I felt. And yet I've been embraced by you guys. So here we are. Well, tell, tell me what you think has happened. I mean, you, you're absolutely right
1: about this. On the right, and one of the reasons I'm on the right is because they love conversation and argument, and, and that's what I love. I love. I love talking about my ideas and hearing other ideas. I love being challenged in my ideas. I mean, what, you know, what did they invent whiskey and cigars for if not to have great conversations? What happened to the left? I mean, you were on the left. I was on the left, but it was now a long time ago. You were on the left fairly recently. How did they lose their way so badly?
2: I, th- I actually think it's very clear, and I, if I can impart anything on people, this is what I want people to understand, that what happened to the left was that liberals innately, when people say you're liberal, what they're sort of saying is you're open-minded. And when conservatives criticize liberals, they mean you're so open-minded that your brain fell out of your head. But there is a version (laughs) of liberalism, there is a version of being open-minded that is good. You know, the founders in effect, I think were classical liberals, meaning they wanted a pluralistic open society based on individual rights, but then they also talked about God-given rights and the light touch of government, okay. What happened was, I would say about five years ago, but I think some people could argue it was a little bit before that, when this new wave of angry, socialist, progressive, Bernie, AOC, identity politics-driven lefties came in, they said, well, how do we get into the system? In the system, we have liberals, you know, sort of Democrats and, and conservatives, Republicans. How do we get into the system? Well to break into the conservative side of that is very hard because conservatives although they don't always live up to it have sort of foundational principles the constitution the bill of rights individual rights these are these are things that it doesn't mean conservatives do them right all the time but it's a it's a foundational set of principles that it's hard to break into liberals because of the open-mindedness of liberalism, (laughs) which I think is, is actually a good thing, liberals will kind of let any idea in there. So if you say that there are no biological differences from men and women, which of course we know that there are. Men have penises, women have vaginas. Sorry that I'm asked to bring out the controversial stuff with you, Clavin. Um, but suddenly liberals liberals will go, oh, it's a social construct? Like, let's think about it. And And that's because of the openness of the liberal mind. And then what happens is, the progressives saw that. They saw the liberals who don't want people to be racist. And then they, so then they started finding racism everywhere. And the progressives really calculatingly, and, and part because of their endless hysteria and over emotion and all of that stuff, it kind. if you're young and you don't know exactly what you think yet, it sounds good, man. Everybody else is a racist. Everyone's a greedy capitalist pig, and what are you? You're a good, moral, decent person. And because it's 2020 now, you're also evolved and you have technology and your parents and grandparents were either idiots or racists or buffoons, and everything that came before you was somehow backwards and, and ridiculous. In essence, I think that's what, that's why this happened. The, the good, I don't know, and this is a very depressing conclusion for me to come to, I don't know that liberalism in and of itself can, can stand um, and I think yeah. this is where conservatives actually, this is where conservatives actually figured out some of the right things. And, and I know we talked about it a little bit the other day on, on my show. But this is also where one of the things that Jordan Peterson really moved me on was the importance of, of belief outside of yourself and religious stories, because this is what conservatives turn to when times get tough. And what liberals turn to is the secular world completely but the secular world doesn't have the underpinnings to stop craziness. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing right now.
1: Yeah, I mean, we we don't always know what the truth is, but we know there is a truth and we know we, we have to be grounded in that, that. And I think faith is an important part of that. Was there a moment for you, if, I mean, you talk about your debate with Larry Elder at one point in the book and uh, Don't Burn This Book. Was there, was there a, a specific point when you
2: started to think, uh-oh, you know, I'm on the wrong side? I mean, there were there were a bunch of things. I lay out three specific examples in the book that were the sort of like one after the other smash me over the head kind of wake up calls. One of them that I've told a million times is when uh, Ben Affleck and Sam Harris got into that famous debate on Bill Maher um, where they couldn't separate ideas and people and then Affleck called right. Bill Maher and Sam Harris gross and racist and then suddenly everyone on the left was calling Bill Maher racist and it was like, wait a minute, this is, this is your guy. This is the guy who's been fighting from the liberal lefty position for 30 years more than anyone else and now he's thrown out because Batman overly emoted. I mean, so that that was one because it's it, because also because it was an A-list actor, you know, and it was like it was so it was such a perfect example red in the face pounding the table you're racist. It was just like all of it at once. Uh the two others that I lay out, uh, I'll just one of them was my final straw actually was Charlie Hebdo because I saw lefties basically saying oh, we can't draw cartoons of things, in effect, and stop being mean mm-hmm. to those people. And it's like, well, wait a minute. First off, I only heard people on the right being mean to the people who committed the murder, not all Muslim people. I heard nobody saying that, um, But which of course is the way it should be. Um, but this idea that, oh, we shouldn't draw cartoons because some people get upset by that. It's like, well, those same people get upset by having a gay bar in town, but you're supposed to be for gay people too, so should we not have gay bars? Because that upsets them. Or or the litany of other intellectual inconsistencies. The one that you might find most interesting, uh, I'm guessing you're familiar with David Webb on uh, Sirius XM. Do you you know David Webb on the Patriot Channel? So he's a great guy, and years ago when I was on The Young Turks, we were playing a clip, he was guest hosting, I think for uh, Hannity, if I'm not mistaken, on Fox News. And I'm sitting with my tolerant lefty liberal co-host and David's just saying some conservative stuff that he believes and they're calling him an Uncle Tom and a sellout and a self-hating black man and just the litany of awful things and suddenly, What happened was they didn't realize that I knew David Webb. We were friends because I used to have a show on Sirius XM and I met him in the hallway one day and I was a big lefty, a Bernie supporting lefty, and he was on the right, but we struck up a conversation. I used to go on his show every week. We'd debate stuff and then we'd go downstairs and we'd have whiskey and a steak and, and we were good. And suddenly what happened was I saw these tolerant liberals, mostly white, and I'm only using it because this is their language, seeing a black man who doesn't behave the way they want him to behave, and suddenly they feel that can give them license to call him all of the worst things in the book. And because I knew him personally, and know, I mean, he's a dear friend of mine to this day, and it's like, I know he believes what he says, and it is not easy to, to take that position. I mean, Larry Elder, Thomas Sowell, uh, so many of these people, it's not easy to take the conservative position when you're black because of the way the left will treat you. It's like being a gay person that's a conservative or at least, say, right-leaning in some way. And once I saw it, because it was a person I knew, and I saw, what I, what I realized was that this, this is the new pernicious racism of the left. It's not, oh, you can't go to that water fountain. It's something much worse actually because it's, because that's an easy racism to call out, right? Like I know you, you would, mm-hmm. of course you would call out that racism. It's obvious every conservative would call out that racism. But this new racism, it comes guised as anti-racism. And because of that, people have a really hard time understanding what it is. So it was those three things that, that really snapped uh, the back of this thing for me. And then actually one other thing is that then I started meeting you guys and that really is the truth. I started, I started meeting you, you and Ben and Michael and Glenn Beck and Dennis Prager and Larry Elder and the litany of, of all of you guys. And every single one of you was welcoming and nice and actually shocked that I was being nice to you. And that really struck me. That really, you, you, I, all of you, the first time I met all of you, I, one way or another, you said some version of, I don't get it. How are you a liberal? You're being nice to me. And, and that that sort of thing kind of rubbed off on me. Yeah, yeah, no, it is. That that was a shock to me too. I
1: thought intellectual conservative was an oxymoron, and I found this incredible collection of very, very bright, very kind, very open-minded people. Uh, it's it's terrific. Burn, don't burn this book is the name of the book. Dave Rubin, you know. Congratulations! Congratulations on getting on the Times list, and uh, it's a terrific read. Thanks for coming on, Dave. It's good to see you.
2: Clavin, one other, one other thing, you know, I heard you do the yeah. keeps ad right before you brought me on and you said, if you don't want to look like me, and I just want to say, Claven, if it ever goes, I want to look like Andrew Claven.
1: <laughs> I appreciate that. All right, but try to keep it if you can, pal. I'm trying, I'm trying. All right, be good, right, my it's friend. Good to see you. You too. Bye-bye. All right. I want to take a moment to tell you about Daily Wire's newest, most exclusive membership tier, the All Access Insider. Once you are an All Access Insider, you can look at other Daily Wire members and sneer. You can look at everybody and sneer it you know look stupid, but you can do it, but you will, it won't matter because you will be an all-access insider. The membership tier is our premier level of membership. All-access members get the benefits of our other membership tiers, including an ad-free website experience, access to all our live broadcasts, Ben's full show, and his dedicated editorials. But you also get <laughs> the leftist tiers tumbler. It is solid gold, diamond-encrusted. Uh, it's not, but we say that, and it's it's terrific. You can come on our online Q and As. You can get our all access live, which we did, I did last night. It was so much fun. I wish you'd been there. If you weren't, uh, it, it really is terrific. Oh, just a way that I can talk to you directly. You want to be in an all access member? So wait, there's a deal. I, sh- I have to. I threw down the pager, but I should actually read the deal. Head over to DailyWire. dot com slash subscribe to join Daily Wire All Access Club with a new membership or an upgrade and get ten percent off with coupon code. Claven that's dailywire.com/subscribe slash subscribe. you'll have a full head of hair and yet you will know how to spell Claven I don't know this show is just getting away from me somehow but at least I'm having a good time come over to dailywire.com and subscribe All right. You know, we've been talking a lot over this uh, lockdown period, which I hope hopefully is starting to uh, come apart a little bit. and We're starting to come out, but uh, talking about stuff to watch and think about. And uh, one of the uh, things I've always wanted to talk about what I've been trying to look at things that are short to read. And then you can watch the movie after you read them. And one of them is just a book I've recommended a number of times. I found my childhood copy of it, uh, Shane, uh, by Jack Schaefer. Shane is a a Western novel uh, published in 1949. It is a terrific novel. It's a famous movie, but the novel is great, and it's a really, really quick read. And I I would say if you've got uh, kids, uh, especially little boys uh, over 12 probably, could read it with a uh, lot of fun about a, uh, a, a mysterious rider who comes into a family's life out on uh, out in Wyoming. Um, I believe it's Wyoming, but anyway, the, the, what he comes to is a bunch of settlers and they have been given land essentially by the government and the people who were out there who claimed the land and were are running cattle and need all this territory. They want to run these, what they called homesteaders off the land. And this mysterious rider comes in and becomes part of this family, a, a father, mother, and a son. And it, it became, you've probably heard the the old thing, come back, Shane, uh, was actually, which is one of those lines that's actually not in the movie. Uh, but in, in the movie, Shane was played by Alan Ladd. It's taken from being a very small novella, really, uh, to being a tremendous big uh, Technicolor Western. Uh, Alan Ladd plays Shane, and Gene uh, Arthur plays the mom. She's very beautiful. Uh, Van Heflin plays the dad. And the uh, son, the little boy, is played by Brandon Wilde. And uh, Wilde died very young, I believe, in a car accident. But he was in a, just a couple of movies. And I want to take a look at two of them for a really interesting reason. What Shane is about... Shane is about a boy. Seeing two, he tells the story. He remembers the story in the in the novel, and it's the movie is filmed kind of from his point of view. And it's basically he has two father figures. He has the steadfast, strong, uh, powerful father figure who is holding his home together, who loves his mom, uh, who is um, building a life out on the prairie. And then it has this mysterious guy who's great with a gun. And he is obviously kind of a bad guy, but also kind of a good bad guy. And uh, somebody says at one point, uh, uh, the mother says, is he dangerous? And the father says he's dangerous, but not to us. And I think that that is the the story is both the boy and the woman uh, have to choose between what kind of man uh, they're going to love because there's a very, very faint touch of uh, attraction between Shane and the mother. And it's just remarkable. And at one point, uh, there's this very moving scene that I think all conservatives will love uh, where Shane takes the little boy out, Brandon DeWilde, and teaches him how to use a gun. And the mother says, I do not want his life to be about guns. I want him to be a good man who builds a family. And this is uh, Shane's response. Let's play this little clip from the movie. Now, look, remember now, when your hand comes up, you still have room to clear your holster. Shane, all oh, of to start. I was just teaching Joey how to do a little shooting.
0: I don't want it a little shooting. You ought too. to see
2: Shane shoot, Ma. I did, Joey. He's teaching me to shoot. Yes, I know, dear. Now, you run along and get ready for the party. Oh, Ma! I want Joey. Guns aren't going to be my boy's life. Why do you always have to spoil everything?
1: Bang! Bang! bang. A gun is a tool, Marion. No better, no worse than any other tool. An axe, a shovel, or anything gun is as good or as bad as the man using it. Obviously, a piece of wisdom that uh, meaning morality come from us. They don't come from anything else. Beauty, truth, all of it comes from us. It doesn't. I mean, obviously, it comes from God ultimately. But here on Earth, the only people who know anything about this stuff are human beings. Uh, You know, dogs don't have good and bad. They may. We don't know if animals have beauty, but they don't know what beauty is. They don't have the word beauty. And so they don't know what it is. And what he's saying here is a gun is just a piece of metal. It's just an object but it gets meaning from the way it's used and by the person who uses it. And that is a, a central point of, uh, the world that they're in, that they're going to need these guns to remain, to keep a household. They're going to need to fight to keep what they have. Uh, but it's going to be what you, it's about, what you're fighting for and who you are when you use these things. You know, for those of you who like the film Logan, uh, you know, Shane is a, um, is a Christ story. It's a story about someone who descends into this valley and saves the valley and then goes away. And he's a Shane, a Shane is a Christ figure. And it's really interesting in Logan, uh, Shane becomes a touch point of the story. And what I think James Mangold was saying, I wrote a review of it at the time, and Mangold actually uh, thanked me thanked me for the review because it's a very intelligent uh, superhero movie. As what Mangold is saying is that superheroes are the new Western, and Westerns were a, were a way of conveying Christian values. And that is cemented in the movie when a, uh, a cross falls over and becomes an X for the X-Men. And he's basically saying the story is the Christian story, is the Western story, is the superhero story. It's all one story of, of sacrifice and decency. What's really interesting is that the, the other really big movie that Brandon DeWild was in, he played almost the same character grown up, a boy caught between two uh, versions of men, and this was Hud. Hud is based on uh, a book, a, a very small novella, worth reading. Good read. It's not a great novel like Shane, but it's really good uh, by Larry McMurtry, who you know he wrote uh, Lonesome Dove, Broke Back Mountain. Terms of Endearment was based on one of his books, uh, and um, and Hud is about a young man who admires Hud, who is this uh, cowhand in a modern uh, at a ma- modern cattle ranch. And Hud is just a guy, a troubled guy who's starting trouble, but he's romantic and he's charming uh, and he's got a lot going for him. And Brandon Wilde plays the young man who's caught between him and his grandfather, played by Melvin Douglas. And here's a scene where uh, Hud and DeWild get into a big drunken brawl and they just have a tremendously great time. Uh, this is the first of the two cuts from Hud uh, and uh, the grandfather uh, catches him.
0: And he's got you drunk. What else has he given you a taste for? All we have is a co-
2: <laughs> couple of drinks, is all. I don't remember you being a teetotaler. I drank. I don't
1: object to his having whiskey. Well, something seems to be eating away at your liver. You, Hud, like always.
2: Hey, what are you climbing on Hud for? You think a lot of Hud, do
1: you? You think he's a real man while you're being tucked in. You listen to a Anjo. He's my daddy and he knows. I know you. You're smart. You got your share of guts. You can talk a man into trusting you and a woman into wanting you. And then I got it made, ain't
0: I? To hear you tell why, it. Why don't you
1: get it off your chest? I've been griping you all this time with what I've done to Norman. You were drunk and careless of your brother. If you
0: had 15 years to get over it, that's half of my life. That's not our quarrel and never has been. What oh, the hell it isn't. No, boy. I was sick of you a long
1: time before that. That, of course, is the great Paul Newman as Hud. And if you if you don't know Paul Newman, because sometimes people haven't watched, they I guess they've seen um, uh, the the gangster movie uh, he was in at the at the very end. But if you don't know his early work, Hud and uh, Cool Hand Luke, and uh, some just some t- absolutely a hustler, uh, absolutely terrific films. He was a really really good movie star and a and a good actor, good solid actor as well. But in this in this, uh, too, is one of the things that's really interesting about HUD is that HUD is an attractive character. And as you saw there, Melvin Douglas, the old man who has uh, who's a much more caring, uh, much more moral person, is not as attractive. He's an old crank. He's a curmudgeon. Uh, he's not what the young boy wants to be. The young boy wants to be somebody uh, like HUD. And it takes a long time for the boy uh, to see that there is something to what this old man is saying, that, that HUD is empty. He doesn't care about people. He doesn't bring. He doesn't bring values uh, into the world. And I, I just want to end by playing, you know, a, a famous scene from Macbeth. This is Patrick Stewart playing Macbeth. At the end of Macbeth, he is told that his wife is dead and he makes one of the famous nihilist scenes. And I'll tell you why I link this to these two pictures. Life but a
0: walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage. And then
1: he's heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. So Macbeth is about a story about a man who basically links into evil who becomes evil in order to achieve the things he wants. And he ends up making that fabulous nihilistic speech saying that life is meaningless. And the point here that I'm trying to get at is that what Shane understands is that meaning comes from a meeting of the man's heart with the moral world, right? That is what makes the gun just a tool is because the man has a heart in the moral world. What the old man yells at uh, HUD in the movie is that you're attractive. you got charm. you got style. People like you. Young people look up to you. Girls want to sleep with you, but you don't care. You're detached yourself from the moral world, and that makes you nothing. And what Shakespeare explained, and this is just one of the great truths of life, is you can live like that. You can live like HUD. You can win through. You can become a billionaire living like that. You can become a successful person But life loses its meaning. Detach yourself from the moral world and life becomes empty. Macbeth doesn't see the world as nothing because the world is nothing. He doesn't see life as being worthless because life is worthless. He sees it as being worthless because he has lost the worth of it by acting outside the moral universe. This uh, this wedding between people's hearts and the moral world is where all meaning lies. It's where all joy lies. It's where all salvation lies. And that's why Shane is a, is a Christ story because it's a story of a man who brings that meaning into a valley and saves it. And, uh, and that's what we're looking for when we look for faith, we're looking for a link to that moral world that will give our lives, the meaning and joy that it's supposed to have that uh, the Bible calls life in abundance. All right. I got to stop there, but, uh, that means that, you know, Talking about meaninglessness, it's the Clavenless Weekend. And so off you go into a world of sound and fury signifying nothing. Survivors will gather here on Monday. I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, give us a five star review and also tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Matt Walsh Show, and The Michael Knowles Show. Thanks for listening. The Andrew Clavin Show is produced by Robert Sterling and directed by Mike Joyner. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Technical producer, Austin Stevens. And our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Assistant Director, Pavel Wydowski. Edited by Adam Siavitz. Audio mixed by Robin Fenderson. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Alvera. Animations are by Cynthia Angulo. Production assistants, McKenna Waters and Ryan Love. The Andrew Clavin Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2020.
0: You know, the Matt Walsh Show...